Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, October 3rd, 2008. Episode 97 comes to you from Studio B in beautiful Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes or Radio Joe and here with me in the studio is the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Always a pleasure to work with you, Joe. Good day, Cliff. And the wingman is at the controls, Chris Boisel. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Chris. We've also got our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wild, coming in in a little bit. Today's segments will include the microband trivia question, and we're going to have our IICRC S520 update with Mr. Larry Cooper, their standards consultant, and Mr. Michael Bowden, the attorney for the IICRC. We'll have the IE Connections What's News segment, and then we'll go to the roundup. The Z-Man and I, with the wingman's help, have been working on that iaqradio.com website, adding a blog every week after the show at iaqradio.com. Before we go to the show, let's thank our sponsors. Our newest sponsor is Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com Indoor Environment Connections the newspaper for the IAQ industry subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com Dry Ease Products providing equipment for drying water damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and our services. Okay, to contact the show, you can call 724-444-7444, enter our show ID, which is 1547, and just press the number 1 to join the show. You can also download the show by going to our website, www.iaqradio.com, and then follow that link that says go to the show. Or you can also get our show from iTunes. We appreciate suggestions. We'll answer questions, take requests. If you email us at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com or cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. You can also get IICRC continuing education credits or IAQ Council renewal credits by emailing me and requesting a quiz, again, at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. And, of course, last but not least, please visit that IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at, iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to Cliff for the microband trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Well, listeners, I'm sorry to report no correct answers for last week's trivia question. Okay, the microband trivia question for Friday, October 3rd, 2008. Which U.S. non-regulatory federal agency within the Commerce Department is the holder of the official national standards? Okay, that, must, that was a tough one last week, Cliff. You left us a tough one. That's the first time we haven't had, had an answer in quite a while. I'm going to turn it back over to Cliff to introduce our first guest, but we've got a little intro. Well, why don't you right? do Michael first? Then. Okay. okay. All right, let's do Michael. Michael Bowden received well, his... Okay, go ahead. 
Bachelor of Science degree in microbiology from Texas A&M University in 1979 and a Doctor of Jurisprudence degree from South Texas College of Law in 1987. He has been practicing environmental toxic tort corporate regulatory real estate and insurance law in Texas and throughout the southern United States for 21 years. He has spoken at over 100 local, regional, and national seminars for attorneys, independent adjusters, insurance companies, corporations, municipal, uh, municipal utility districts, public and private school districts, universities, contractors, distributors, and manufacturers. He's the author of over 50 legal industry and trade publications, and he contributed extensively to the IICRC S500 and both editions of the S520. He's currently a partner in the law firm of Brown Sims in Houston, Texas, and uh, we can give his contact information at the end of the show. Okay, our second guest is Larry Cooper, who founded Textile Consultants in 1975. Larry's an experienced business owner from the cleaning and restoration industry with over 33 years' experience. Larry is the managing partner in Meetings and Events. Meetings and Events produces the connections, conventions, and trade shows. Larry is a past president of the Professional Carpet and Upholstery Cleaners Association, Larry also served as president of the IICRC for a four-year term and then served on the IICRC Board of Directors for 19 years. Larry chaired the IICRC Standards Committee for 12 years and oversaw and managed the development and writing of the S-500 Water Damage Standard, the S-520 Mold Remediation Standard, the S-100 Carpet Cleaning Standard, and the S-300 Upholstery Cleaning Standard. Larry is currently a paid technical consultant to the IICRC for the continued development and updates to the IICRC standards and works with the American National Standards Institute or ANSI in getting the IICRC standards approved as national accredited standards. Uh, you want to do the music? Hey, Larry, I think we're going to go to you for the first question. And why should we write industry standards? And why does it take such a large committee to, to do that job? Hey, thanks for having us on the show. You're very welcome. a long time in, in coming. We appreciate the opportunity. Um, standards are, I think, critical to our industry. Number one, it, it sets a basis of knowledge for us to put in writing, challenge, and have an opportunity to test and acknowledge whether um, what we're doing as uh, a standard of care in the industry is correct or if there's ways to improve on uh, those opportunities. Um, for years, uh, when I got in the business anyway, back in the 70s, um, we made everything up as we went along. And when we started writing things down in the 90s, um, the industry has come a long way. It, it changes every two to three years. and the basis of knowledge and testing is, is rapidly increasing. And that's really why I was interested in, in the standard development myself and trying to understand what really works, what hurts the environment, what hurts people, what helps the environment, what helps people, and how to improve on that. Why does the it take so many, we have people, so many people? Yeah. The reason we have so many people is when you're working on a consensus document, consensus is such an interesting uh, format. Some organizations hire a writer and the writer will come in and write a document and then send it out for uh, industry review. The IACRC uh, started doing things quite different, and ANSI uh, looked at it very carefully, and I think they thought we were crazy the way we do it, but other organizations are doing this as well. We bring in uh, a lot of industry folks from different avenues, different areas of the industry, uh, so that every avenue, every interest is looked at, and um, we have an opportunity from a diverse uh, group of people to write a document um, that is not only written by the industry for the industry, but it's used by the industry because they wrote it, and it's their document, and it's their standard of care. And it's really made a big difference in the amount of folks, especially using the S-500 and the 520 documents. Okay, well, thank you, Larry, and thanks for joining us today. Let's go over to uh, Michael. Michael, thanks for joining us. Welcome. 
Thank you, sir. Good to be here. Thanks uh, for having me. We really appreciate it. And uh, I guess what I'd like to start out with with you is, um, you know, what was your role in helping to develop the uh, S-522nd edition? Well, I started out first with the S-500. I worked on that extensively. I worked on the first edition of the S-520 and therefore kind of developed and, and, and transitioned into the second edition. I had a more extensive role in the, in the S-500, S-522nd edition. I was the administra- Administrative Procedures Documentation and Risk Management Chair. I also uh, was a legal reviewer and was a member of the Edit Committee. So I had uh, substantial uh, contact with the S-522nd edition. You wore several hats, huh? Tried to keep all the uh, balls in the air. <laughs> Cliff, l- l- Larry, if I wanted to become involved with the standard, you know, one of our listeners, how, how would they get involved with this? Well, there's several ways uh, they can get involved. Number one, they can go to the ISCRC website, www.iscrc.org, and there's a place uh, within that uh, website where they can send a message directly to the standards chair telling them of their interest uh, in joining one of the committees. Now, the committees aren't active all the time. Uh, Right now, uh, we have an S-100 committee that's active, and we're writing a carpet reference guide. Those two committees are active. The S-500 committee will become, uh, that's the water damage standard, will become active again in uh, 2009. So it's a great opportunity up front to to get involved. Um, Obviously, with the number of people that want to be involved in the document, you can only have so many committee chairs and vice chairs. And so what we try to do is find out expertise of the individuals, and we will give that information to all of our committee chair people who will call on them and ask them to participate at the committee level. Each one of our chapters has a chapter chair, and each one of those chapters then has a separate committee, and the, the volunteers then participate at those committee levels. It's open to anyone. Okay, let me throw this out to, to either one of you. Um, as a standards uh, conformity assessment system, you know, what does ANSI really actually oversee, the technical accuracy of the document or the document development process? ANSI uh, is an accreditor of uh, standard development bodies, and so IICRC became an accredited organization through ANSI. And what ANSI actually does is uh, they oversee the development process of writing a standard or any standards we're involved in. And what they're specifically looking at, and what we have to record, is openness of our uh, process, balance, uh, due process, transparency, and consensus. And there's a number of critical pieces that we also have to record, obviously, having to do with voting, having to do with public review processes, and uh, just showing them an accurate uh, recording of uh, the process itself. They're not interested in the tech- technical accuracy. They don't have committee people that are experts in mold or water or carpet specifically. Okay. I just wanted to get that background information in before we, we go into a little more detail on the standard itself. What, let's also get this background information in. How, how popular was the first edition of S520? And what do you expect on the second edition? How many copies will we sell? Uh, you know, we sold probably around 25,000, uh, I believe, of the first edition. Um, it was very interesting when we uh, finally did come out. Uh, we worked on that for over three years. Um, it was pretty controversial for folks that uh, strongly supported the uh, New York City guidelines. Um, there was a, a, a significant change philosophically in what was in the 520 versus what was in the New York City guidelines. So uh, it's taken a lot of years, a a lot of discussion, and there's still a lot of discussion to be had about, you know, what is safe, uh, what are real numbers, and what numbers we need to work towards. You know, part of the problem with uh, writing a standard like the mold remediation standard is no other organization's taken the lead in trying to determine what levels of mold are safe in the environment and what we should cling to. And so it's become a little precarious about what numbers and significantly from a philosophical standpoint, how you do these jobs and what to look for. 
and how we uh, address mold specifically and, of course, mold that you can't see. You know, both Joe and I are among the 25,000 people or so that bought a copy of the first document. I guess the big question I've got is, will I get my money's worth uh, if I buy a new one? Is it really that dramatically different? Oh, I think absolutely. The uh, The second edition, uh, the changes in the second edition are, are very numerous. And let me just hit the high points a bit. Um, the second edition has about 40% more reference material. I think it gives uh, a credible, incredible storehouse of the latest up-to-date scientific knowledge for the uh, mobile mediator. There is a brand new building materials and science chapter, which I think really underscores the scientific basis upon which all these policies, procedures, and, and methodologies are based. The structural mediation chapter, I think, has a greatly detailed, uh, more, more detailed procedure section. Uh, the tools, I think, are, are, are excellent in the fact that they've been updated to really show the incredible uh, scientific advancement in the areas of, of those, those, area, those areas that uh, remediators need to perform their services. And I think basically, uh, overall, it's been, it's been changed, the order's been changed, and it's been more, made more user-friendly for the practitioner. Larry, is there uh, anything you'd like to add? I'm sorry, I missed that question. Was, was there anything you'd like to add with respect to changes? Well, what I can tell you is when we started the revision of the S520, we expected that we'd be done in 18 months. And when the committee started working on their sections, there was so much testing and so much new information available that each and every chapter was completely rewritten from start to finish. So the entire document is, is different. Um, it is not the same. And they've added the science that's been investigated, testing that's been done, and new research that's done, and, and new processes that are being used now also. Um, so I think it's vital that anybody involved in the mold remediation or any part of the mold business uh, have a copy of this document to see what the standard of care in the industry is. And I'd like to add one more thing. As an attorney, the administrative procedures documentation and risk management section in the, in the new S520 is worth the cost to the small business owner because it provides the small business owner with a lot of new information where he can really greatly streamline his internal management of these jobs and, and really avoid all the risky decisions that have been made in the past by companies who haven't been uh, armed with the uh, current uh, legal or scientific information. Uh, you know, one of the requirements uh, for for ANSI approval is that the standards development process should have a balance of interests and should not be dominated by any single interest group, individual, or organization. What procedures are used to prevent bias during document development? Well, in our own uh, uh, policies and procedures, IICRC submitted to ANSI and that I implement uh, as a consultant to the IICRC, 4.2.2 uh, talks specifically about balance and, and lack of dominance. And so we've made sure that from a voting standpoint going forward that uh, there are uh, no interest groups, uh, specifically companies that are represented with a vote, uh, more than one person having a vote specifically. Um, we do not allow dominance in any of the committees. And one way to balance that out is as the chapters are written individually by those committees, it then has to come back to the entire voting committee, which is, uh, again, uh, unbiased on these areas. And it's got to go through that committee also. And one of the things that we use um, in the process is uh, in the voting process for consensus, 51% does not win. And you have to have a, a real strong majority. And the way that we have come to use voting cards is we have a voting system one through five. One says we agree. Five says I absolutely cannot live with this. And whenever we see a five around the table, the entire voting process stops. And that person has an opportunity to explain exactly what their concerns are and try to at least sway the vote a little bit so that 
uh, if the language is offensive and or somebody's put something in that's not right, they have an opportunity to expose that, and the entire committee will be able to look at that, review it, before they vote on any of the specific chapters. Okay, let me ask a question. I'm not sure how. Let me try and phrase this right. You have a pretty large reference section now. And um, then you have the standard itself, and just for people who aren't quite familiar with that, let's start with the intent of the document with respect to performing mold remediation. Is this to teach people how to do mold remediation? Is, is the standard that, or is it the reference section, or neither? Yeah, neither. And so let me just describe the process. The committee first writes the reference section. And as the reference section is, is written, there's five indicator words that are critical. They include uh, shall, should, recommended, can, and may. Anytime shall and should are used in any of the reference sections, those areas of the reference are moved to the standard. That is the standard of care. There may, in some instances, be a few recommendeds that move forward also. But the reason that uh, the reference guide is included with the standard is so that if someone is reading the standard out on location or they're doing a report or whatever it is, and they need further information or validation of what something is, is saying in the standard, they can go back and reference the reference guide and get more clarification, more information about the subject matter. It was never intended for it to be a teaching guide. There's great organizations, classes, schools that are teaching the information, and this should be something that's used in addition to that technical training. Uh, can you, uh, we actually have a texted question, um, and I'll, I'll try to paraphrase it if I can. Uh, who does the organization define as the Secretariat for Standards, and can you clarify whether the Secretariat is a person, a group of people, or a board of some type? Well, Michael, I'll try Sure, I'll answer that question. As the, the, the term secretariat is utilized by the IIC or IICRC to essentially talk about the organization. And it, it is a, 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 an organizational term where certain people as designated or authorized representatives act in certain capacities for the organization. It's, it's been confused over the years with um, uh, whether it's a person or a thing, it's actually both. Uh, a, 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 the organization authorizes an individual to act on its behalf. And so, therefore, there may be different, organ different individuals acting in different capacities for the organ organization, but it all goes back to what the authority is that the board of directors of the IICRC grants an individual in a certain role or capacity. So just to, to tell you more about what our policies and procedures say, it's, it's clearly spelled out that the ISCRC itself is designated as the secretariat. And then when appropriate responsibilities of the secretariat may be assigned or delegated to the standards chair, maybe to the standards consultant, or maybe others uh, specifically engaged in the ISCRC process when necessary. I guess that was a something that you know a couple people had questions about. And we got emails on that, and I guess the follow-up would be, you know, what lessons have been learned about you know managing the development of industry standards during this process. <laughs> well, first of all, let's go back to the people that were confused about who the secretariat was. There was never any confusion from the IACRC standpoint about who the secretariat was. Um, there was an individual who specifically was writing all kinds of things about who is the secretariat, it's a moving target. That was never the case. He just was very unhappy with the process because when issues came up uh, and the vote was taken, uh, the vote would be 24 to 1, and he couldn't get his point across. And there wasn't agreement about what he was trying to get done. Um, moving forward with the process and answering your question, um, what I've learned specifically being involved in standards all these years um, is that none of this is personal and there's a process in place and we're all trying to do the best job we can for the industry to bring information and, and education and uh, standards forward so that we can continually improve uh, the industry. Um, 
I don't have a bias myself. I'm not involved in mold remediation or water damage. And what I'm trying to do is implement a process. And one of the things I really learned during the 520 process is that when people have a concern and they want to file an appeal, there's an appeal process that should be followed and adhered to pretty strictly. And what I tried to do with two individuals during this process is I tried to work with them one-on-one, as, as well as Mark Hansen, our former uh, attorney, as well, did the same. We tried to work with them one-on-one to see if we could resolve the issues and bring their issues back to the committee um, and, and see whatever we could do to resolve it. We, we tried really hard to do that. And what I learned from the process is both these individuals really wanted to be heard and that I shouldn't slow down the process by my thinking I can be a hero in trying to resolve their issues without going through an appeals process. When an, appeals, uh, is, an appeal is, is, uh, is uh, filed with the ISCRC in the future, um, we're going to follow the policies pretty specifically so that we move through it in a very um, formidable fashion and we follow the timelines that are spelled out in our policies and uh, give them an opportunity to be heard by the committee uh, as quickly as possible so we can move the process forward. Great. That's an excellent – that had to, it has to be tough for you in, in your position, you know, to be uh, unbiased. Uh, yeah, it's, it's tough. I mean, I, I just uh, – I was, was asked to run for the board again for IAQA. I'm, I'm not going to do that, and it's, it, it's partially because sometimes it's not very thank- – it's a thankless position at times. So I appreciate your candor. And, uh, well, let me also tell you that both of these individuals, I felt like, were close friends to me. And so I thought that understanding what their point of view would be, I could help them bring it back to the committee for discussion. And we would do that, and we thought we would resolve it, and it wasn't resolved to the way or liking of those individuals. So I made a mistake in judgment myself by putting myself in that position. And what I should have done is, is manage the process and not try to help the individuals. So I guess I was going to ask, if you had a mulligan, uh, is that what it would have been? Um, <laughs> that's a heck of a question. You know, anytime you get involved in a mold remediation standard, everything's off the table. It, it, uh, it's a very interesting subject, and it's hard to get uh, two PhDs in the room that agree on anything related to uh, to mold, it's, it's a very uh, difficult subject to write a standard for. Um, we're writing a carpet cleaning standard, and, you know, there's issues that come up, uh, but it's not at the same levels, obviously. And um, we just have to be very careful how we manage the process and make sure that we stay on track with the process and uh, allow voices to be heard uh, openly and um uh, and have them uh, um, uh, put in writing any concerns they have about the process. Okay. What was what type of uh, before? I think what we'll do is we'll finish with a question here for the first half on the process and the development, etc. And then in the second half, maybe go into a little more technical information from the document. But I'm just curious, what what type of financial investment does IICRC have in developing this this standard? That it's got to be a pretty big investment over time and money. Yeah, I don't know the exact number. And if I did, they'd probably shoot me if I disclosed it. But <laughs> it's, it's very significant. Um, it's in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Meetings are very expensive. Uh, time, I mean, this, this document was uh, four years and eight months in the, in the development. Um, there were a lot of folks involved in it. And... Um, uh, it is not cheap, obviously, um, but ISCRC is committed to the process and is committed to um, working specifically on uh, industry uh, guidelines and standards that uh, help uh, improve the, the information we have in every one of the industries we work in. You know, we, we tried before the show to make sure that we're both you know, on the same page, give you an idea of what types of uh, issues we're interested in. I'm not sure if either of you uh, are familiar with the Green Book, the new AIHA Green Book, and I'm just curious if you are and if you worked at all with AIHA in trying to help coordinate those documents. 
We uh, were aware of the Green Book. Um, we worked with AIHA on the S520 uh, document. Um, some of their committees uh, um, actually reviewed the document and uh, um, public uh, review process. They submitted a number of comments and questions. Um, we did not have access to their document to understand what was in it. Um, the one thing you, you need to know also is the S520 document uh, has been completed for almost a year, uh, and we had to finish the appeals processes in order to move forward to print it and publish it and bring it to the market. Uh, that's a great point. Yeah, I didn't even think of that, Larry. Thank you. Well, listen, yeah. guys, let's go to a quick uh, break. What we're going to do is go to what we call the IE Connections What's News segment, and then we'll bring you back right after that, and uh, we'll, we'll keep rolling. Thank awesome. you. Just hang on. Okay, we have our leader of men on the line, Glenn Fellman. I'm on the line. How are you, Joe? Very good. How are you today, sir? I'm doing great. Hello, Cliff. And hey, good Glenn. Show. How are you? Thanks. I'm doing great. It's a good show. It's great to hear Larry and Mike talk about S520. I know everybody's very excited about that new standard. I've got three news stories for you, though, this afternoon. Uh, I'd like to deliver them to you, if that sounds good. Sounds Please good do. to us. All right. First one I have on my lineup is, at long last, the California Air Resources Board has completed its work on a new regulation to limit the ozone emitted from indoor air cleaning devices. And this is done in order to protect public health. You've probably been hearing about this and reading about this for a long time, but they're done and the regulation will be uh, approved and in effect uh, in mid-October. Uh, this means that manufacturers, distributors, sellers, and others affected by the regulation would need to meet the testing, certification, labeling, and sales requirements of the regulation by the middle of October 2010. And you can read details about that at uh, www.arb.ca.gov. The rule establishes an ozone emission concentration standards and like you said, requirements for certification and labeling and a bunch of other stuff. But the essence of the regulation is that it establishes an, uh, an emission concentration standard of 0 0.05 parts per million, that's PPM, for ozone released by indoor air cleaning devices that are used in occupied spaces. This is the same emission concentration, by the way, that is established uh, by federal law for air cleaners that are used in medical devices. That's my story number one. Okay. Uh, story number two is an interesting one as well. Uh, readers of Indoor Environment Connections uh, last month read a story. Uh, it was a, an article that was uh, authored by Carl Grimes reporting on a conference that was held up in Massachusetts where uh, a uh, building scientist asserted that lead buildings are less energy efficient than uh, standard buildings as opposed to the claims by the U.S. Green Building Council that they are the 25 to 35 percent more efficient. Well, there's a new report out on the LEED program, but this one has to do with the finances of LEED. It's kind of interesting because while the U.S. Green Building Council has made its name on LEED, it certainly hasn't made its money on, on that program, although the organization is doing very well. In 2006, the nonprofit USGBC spent $5.3 million running the Leadership and Energy Design Program, but it only brought in uh, 1.35 million, so they had a deficit there of about $4 million on that program. However, overall, the organization brought in $26.8 million and only spent $23.1 million, so they put about $3.7 million in the bank that year. What, and that and was, I'm just curious, do you know why, uh, where the money, you know, where they do well? I mean, obviously, they're losing money I, on the... I, I do, I do, in fact. Um, now, their, their 2008 budget is estimated to be about 50 million, which is about double what they did in 2006. Um, in 2006, USGBC made 7.1 million from membership dues, 5.7 million 
from people earning lead accredited professional credentials and 1.5 million public donations. But the biggest source of revenue for the organization is their annual Green Build International Conference and Expo. Uh, in 2006, it generated 9.7 million in revenue, and the one in 2008 is expected to be uh, maybe double in size, so could potentially be you know, talking about maybe even as much as 20 million in revenue. So right. that's where that's where the money comes that's from. That's interesting. Okay, do you have one more? I sure do. It's just a quickie. Uh, folks should check out the um, American Institute of Architects website, AIA.org, and download their Home Design Trends survey for the second quarter of 2008. Uh, probably no surprise here that um, the number of uh, new, new projects architects are being called in on is rapidly diminished, and especially in this, uh, this economy. But what's interesting is that while the, the market for new construction uh, is diminishing, there is a need in the residential market for energy efficiency consultations. People are looking at doing things uh, such as, you know, uh, pardon me, I lost my place here, doing things like solar panels, insulation, um, all kinds of energy efficiency measures. And so architects are being called in for that. I think the AIA through this report is, is indicating to its members that uh, for the foreseeable uh, short-term future at least, they should be looking at those types of, of projects as possibly replacing some of the business they're losing from new construction. Sounds like uh, an area that listeners might want to uh, bone up on and be able to help the architects with. Yeah, I would, I would say so. Um, you know, increase for new work in their study was at an all-time low, and um, uh, the, the National Building Index was also at an all-time low for their organization. All right. Well, thank you, Glenn. Can you join us for the roundup? I'd be glad to. All right. We'll bring you back then. Before we go into the second half, let's bring uh, Dr. Dieter in, see if he has any questions or comments. Hello. Oh, got that music. Yeah, well. Good day, Dieter. Uh, I kind of have a, uh, a, a question and a comment, perhaps. I mean, I like guidelines, and I think there are also legal ramifications, and we got to watch out with that. Now, obviously, not... Uh, uh, two projects are identical, and it says, you know, whenever that and that and that happens, thou must do this, or it is highly recommended, or recommended, or you should. And um, if perhaps on a job which was done perfectly all right, let's say, and some of these steps which were in the guideline were not taken, perhaps because they were not necessary, is that still, I mean, a good lawyer can always come back and say, well, it was written over in here, this document was put together by your peers, and you didn't follow all the thou must do uh, um, uh, sections. You know, Dieter, I think you were reading my notes here. Um, I've got nope. a question that actually goes right up that alley, so why don't we bring Michael and Larry back on, and, and let's start with Michael. Um, the S520. Okay, go I'll ahead. Be glad, I'll be glad to address that issue. You know, you can never stop somebody from suing a mole remediator. What you're really looking at in this question is what is the standard of care as applied to professional mole remediators? And, and when you look at the standard of care, what you're inherently doing is measuring the competency of that professional, trying to find what is the average degree of skill care, diligence, experienced, experience that is common to members of the same profession in the same locale. So I think what, what S520 is trying to do is to inform, to arm the professional mole remediator to, with the knowledge necessary to properly remediate an area based upon sound, current scientific principles. And really, the ultimate holding of an individual being liable for professional negligence will be judged by his peers. And we can't stop people from filing lawsuits. But we, what we can do by these guidelines is to enable the remediator to perform the best possible work based upon, based upon the most up-to-date and reliable methodology. So just because one remediator did not check the box 
on one specific area than another remediator would, that decision will be governed by what the other professionals in the industry have as as their standards and what what, what the common opinion is in the industry. So what one expert says may be may not be identical to what another expert says. Both experts can be right, but then again, most experts can be wrong. So I think that what the S520 tries to do is to present that knowledge, that experience, that current up-to-date level of 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 uh, scientific methodology to enable the remediator not to fall into those traps. I'd like to jump in also, Dieter, because um, this has been a major discussion within the Standards Committee for years, and we've addressed it in every one of our standards, including the S520. Under number one of the standards, there's a scope and a purpose. And under purpose, we specifically use language because of this situation. And it reads, because of the unique circumstances encountered in mold remediation projects, it's impractical to describe procedures that apply to every situation. In certain circumstances, deviation from portions of the standard may be appropriate. Carelessness is unacceptable in common sense, and professional judgment are to be exercised in all cases. And then we encourage them to document any deviation from the standard and why they deviated from it, so that they have it in their records. I didn't read that part, um, and that sounds good to me. I mean, there should be there should be a way out for somebody who does a good job but didn't do it you know, exactly to the standards. And I, I like that. Yeah, That's professional judgment is a yeah professional judgment is critical to all these jobs. Oh, you know, I understand. It, my, it, I'm not criticizing anybody. I just ask sure. a question. I mean, it can be held against you. Of course it can. But, I mean, also defense lawyers. So, uh, <laughs> well, Dieter, thank you so much. And, and can you stick around for the roundup? Oh, looks like we lost Dieter, but uh, we'll bring well, him I'm, back for the well, roundup. I'm here. Okay, you're okay. going gonna to stick around for the roundup then? Oh, sure. Great. Okay, we'll bring you back then. Gentlemen, I'd like I'd like you. to jump in as well, and and I guess I, I'll throw this as a toss up, and either of our guests or both can comment on it. Uh, would you agree that performing mold remediation work in strict accordance with S five twenty results in much higher remediation costs? I'll be glad to to take a shot at that one. Um, I think that the fundamental question you have to ask yourself is: Do you want the mold remediation job to be done as cheaply as possible? are as accurately and correctly as possible. When you utilize the, the procedures and methodologies discussed in 520, I think you, you, you probably will incur additional upfront costs. But you have to measure the value of those costs versus the results achieved. I mean, when you look at the, you know, in the, in the case of a, a, home, a homeowner who has uh, possible health issues. If the job is done right the first time, that's going to save incredible amounts of health costs, diagnosis, care, treatment. Uh, it's allowing the homeowner to get back into his home much quicker, uh, less disruption of life. Uh, it Also, in the, in the matter of a, pub, a personal property, it, it protects personal property to a higher degree. For the contractors, you look at reduced insurance premiums, reduced legal liability, and, and I think that overall, the, the the right way to do something yields far more dividends in the end than the cheapest way to do something. Okay, that's fair enough. Now, let's go into some of the technical information in the document. I have a quick question. If, if I'm reviewing the document, I'm curious, first of all, I guess, Larry, you might be best to answer this. Is condition one, two, and three still identical to the first first edition they are exactly oh. the same okay so we still have the condition one two and three and we still have I, I assume the preliminary determination by the contractor yes okay yes. great um, and then I assume we still have post remediation evaluation and verification one by the contractor the other by an indoor environmental professional if needed yes great Okay. Not not always the case, right? Excuse me. 
if they're needed, obviously it's in there, but it, it clearly tells uh, the remediator information about when to use them and uh, when possibly they don't need to use them. With respect to the IEP. Okay. And yeah, what about exactly. um, wet cleaning and misting? Do you know if that's still, uh, or misting, I guess. Let's start with misting. Is that still a part of, uh, there was a segment in the well, first. Well, misting one. was not in the first document, and misting has been added to the um, uh, uh, restoration, excuse me, the uh, remediation uh, chapter. So it is in there now where it has not been in there previously. Um, and there was quite a discussion about it, obviously, and the committee, um, after many votes, uh, voted to include that language in there. So misting is covered uh, within the document itself. And I assume it's like the other tools in the toolbox. It's one of those things that a contractor has at his disposal if they so choose, or is that accurate? Well, again, um, one of the things the document specifically talks about in misting is that it's not a replacement for removal of mold and that it can be used as a tool, but it's got to be used carefully. And it describes uh, the process uh, of using misting. Um, and it's on uh, page 161 of the reference guide, um, and uh, it, it's very well written and very well done. Okay. Cliff, I know um, you had a couple on uh, coatings, et cetera. But... Yeah, I, I did, but I have some that I think are, are more important. All right. Um, can either of our guests opine on... Uh, the states requiring mold remediators to be licensed and you know perhaps the role s520 might play in that licensure sure uh, the the three states where I primarily practice Texas Louisiana and Florida have had for some some time mold licensing requirements for contractors inspectors and and labs I think these programs and these statutes are, are excellent they provide a high degree of training, qualification. Uh, they require, for instance, uh, these contractors to be insured. They also talk about conflict of interest provisions where a, an inspector, a mold inspector, cannot also perform mold remediation on the same job that he inspects. And I think for consumers, it's been a, a great, great development in the sense that Everybody's worried about the condition of their property after they've had a mold claim. And so what these statutes provide is certificates of mold remediation that the contractor issues upon uh, the successful remediation of a dwelling, which can be utilized by that homeowner to uh, provide to his insurance company to uh, prevent insurance companies, for instance, from increasing the premiums based upon the history of a mold claim in a, a certain residence. It can also be passed on to the new uh, purchaser. So I think that these programs have really done a great deal in moving the industry forward to increase the level of competency in the area and to provide homeowners with a lot more protection than they had in the past. Okay, let me um, real quickly review what an IEP is, an indoor environmental professional, which contractors may or may not need to use on these projects that was a contentious issue and i'm i know that there was some back and forth and, and i really think it was an accomplishment of iicrc to unify the industry around that issue and to get it resolved can you tell our listeners why it was so important to have these eight different associations sign an agreement that basically says that they won't use that term to create a certification program and that if other people do, they will work together to uh, fight against that, I guess. Is that accurate? It is. Um, I think that the importance of this memorandum, and you're talking about the memorandum of understanding, which was executed with nine organizations, uh, prominent organizations in the indoor air quality area, uh, that set forth a lot of things that were in dispute. It clarified the air. It showed that no one of these organizations will claim exclusive rights to this term. It also talked about the fact that it's a generic term and that it's, it's really a, a descriptor and not a certification. So it, it was extremely important in allaying the fears of a number of these organizations to 
someone's improper use of the term because we felt when we drafted the really the first edition of the S520 as, as well as the second that the term was so important that it was so descriptive it really really describes what the industry was looking for we felt in in this particular individual so i think this memorandum of understanding was a was a watershed event for the industry people with diverse interests were able to come together and uh, do what was best for the industry. It was a great outcome. I'll just jump in real quick. Obviously, this was an important issue. Um, And, you know, the bottom line is ISCRC really did want to collaborate on this uh, issue with other organizations. ISCRC never uh, intended to come up with a designation, certification. We trademarked that particular terms that others would not go out and use it for certification or something else. We've since dropped our trademark on that specific term, and then we have gone ahead and put in the document uh, that ISCRC does not offer recognized professional certification or certification for IEP and prohibits the exclusive use or uh, co-opinion of the term uh, indoor, uh, excuse me, indoor environmental professionals. And so we asked the organizations to be a part of that also in, in not only policing it, but maybe enforcing it in the future. So uh, we'll see where that goes, and hopefully uh, the industry will, will realize that that term was never uh, meant to be a specific designation. Okay. And was that – I know that uh, appeals held up the, you know, the final release, but I guess these types of comments or these types of agreements that – I don't know if that was a comment or uh, an agreement. Did that also hold things up a little bit? Uh, did not hold up the publishing of the document, uh, though we worked on it at the same time as we were finishing up the final portions of the document. Um, we felt that it was critical to have that agreement with all the organizations. Uh, we thought we had a final agreement with all the organizations, and um, a few organizations wanted some additional language. So we had to start over and go back to those organizations. So it did take some time, uh, but it was, it was very worthwhile and, and very worth the investment and time and effort. I, I'd like to second that. I think that was a, a really important step, That and, and I thought you guys did a great job of, uh, even though it did maybe you know make things a little bit tougher, I, I think in the end we have a really nice agreement there and uh, that the industry as a whole will benefit from it. So uh, congratulations on that. Cliff? Um, Thank you. You know, I think if you could comment on this, Larry, out at Connections, almost 100 people attended this S520 update, continuing education course. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the subject matter of that course? Yeah, absolutely. Um, what we are doing as an organization, IICRC, is providing workshops throughout North America, introducing the information that is in the S520 chapter by chapter. Uh, so that uh, there's an opportunity to learn more about the document quickly than trying to absorb it yourself, trying to read it, and trying to get clarification. So what we did in in Las Vegas was pretty unique. We had nine presenters who were all chapter chairs there, and they presented their own chapters and were able to answer questions from the audience about, you know, what the heck was the committee thinking? Um, How did you come up with this information? What documentation did you use? And it was a great meeting, um, very well attended, obviously. And um, we're planning to go on the road uh, starting in November, and uh, we'll probably present about 18 of these. How, how long was that meeting? I'm just curious. Uh, that was an eight-hour uh, workshop. Well, it is a full-day workshop. love yeah. to do something like that on the IAQ radio here, but I don't know if we can do eight hours. Maybe we'll do a couple seconds <laughs> down the bed. <laughs> Yeah, you know, if you were interested, we could bring in some of the chapter chairs so they could discuss specific issues that, you know, your audience might be interested in. I think that would be, you know, good subject matter and a way to start more dialogue in the industry, which is critical for future development of the documents. We'll take you up on that. Before we uh, move into the roundup, I do have one more question on content. Um, There were some charts like the amplification of uh, gray water becoming black and there was the respiratory exposure document um, and some other, those were the two main ones that I can recall that were a little bit, you know, some people were a little controversial, let's say. Are they still in the new document? Well, the first piece uh, is in the S500, not the 520. 
The second piece, which had to uh, uh, was actually in the appendix, has been removed, and it's available at the ICRC website now. Okay, great. Thanks for clarifying that. Gentlemen, we're going to go to what we call the roundup, where we bring everybody back in here. And uh, we still have a bunch of questions, but we've got time constraints, too. So let's uh, round things up here. Okay, let's start with uh, Glenn. Glenn Fellman, any questions or comments? I've got one. Go for it. In, uh, in S520, in the first edition and again in the second edition, uh, fungal ecology is defined by condition one, condition two, and condition three, which is unique to uh, the IICRC standard. And I know sometimes when I talk to industrial hygienists who, who don't have the standard or who don't know the standard, um, these terms are a little foreign to them, and that's not how they uh, often evaluate uh, indoor environments. What efforts are, is IICRC making to uh, educate the people who do indoor air quality investigations and assessments, uh, industrial hygienists, indoor environmental consultants, and so forth? What are we doing to, to make sure that they understand fungal ecology according to the three condition levels? Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Yep. Okay, good. Um, this is Larry. I, uh, what we are doing is we're doing workshops, and we're trying to invite as many of these folks uh, to our workshops as possible to discuss it. I get a lot of phone calls uh, regarding this. Um, the S520 definitely is a philosophical shift away from the numerical mold contamination action levels. And, um, you know, we need to continually better define these. Uh, one of the things we'll probably take on in 2009 is is bring together a panel of uh, PhDs, doctors, whoever it is that's involved specifically in this, and, and talk more about this. Uh, the committee has not wavered in their um, emphasis on the importance of understanding what we're dealing with because none of us can still understand the numerical um, uh, mold contamination action levels. And so uh, it's it's covered pretty well in the document. We don't have an answer, Glenn, about how to reach them. If you have some suggestions, uh, specifically how to do it, we're, we're happy to do that. Um, we have, uh, as an organization, put information out. Uh, we've done public reviews. Uh, we had one commenter uh, who was uh, very much opposed to the language. Um, and uh, other than that, um, we haven't heard from others. Uh, that individual, I've kept his information and uh, we'll include him in any future discussions also. Maybe I could add there, um, it is included too in, in the new AIHA Green Book. Uh, it's not the only thing included. They also talk about the EPA guidelines, the New York City guidelines, et cetera. And um, so I think the AIHA themselves are, are doing a little bit to help promote that as well. Let's, uh, let's go over to Dr. Dieter. Dieter, any questions or comments? Uh, yeah, certainly a comment, and I like I liked your question. Is that in other words, you basically asked if you do the job right, does that cost a little bit more than a guy who just rips it out? And of course, the answer is yes, absolutely. And but in the long run, you're going to gain. And I remember the wise words of my father when I bought cheap tools. He said, "Dieter, I was never rich enough that I could afford to buy something that is cheap." And it is so right. Yeah, you can get away <laughs> with a little bit. You know it. You know it from the history in Pittsburgh. I don't know how many asbestos remediation companies there were. I mean, they were in the 50s or 60s. Who is here today? The ones who did it right, and they were a little bit more expensive. Well, I guess somebody made a couple of quick bucks here and there, but um, yeah, they're gone. So I, I and, and I personally um, would not mind to pay for quality, whatever it is, whether it's a car, whether it's a house, whatever, uh, a little bit more and have it done right and know that it is right. And I know it was done by a reputable company. They know what the heck they are doing. And uh, then somebody who says, you know, uh, yeah, we do this. And um, 
all of a sudden the telephone number doesn't work anymore. You don't see the guy. Um, so I, I think that I, 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 I like that, that we do have a standard and said, hey, look, fellas, this is the way we have to do it. And this is the way that by and large, or 95% of a good job is covered over here. The other 5% are here and there a little bit. They may be different. But I think in, in that respect, a guideline is, is very good. And Joe knows that, and I know that. Uh, we used the book, and we used that one and told our students, and said, look, fellows, this is the way it ought to be done, and uh, take a look at it and uh, follow these uh, guidelines, and you probably don't get in too much trouble. Let's put it that way. Well stated, Dieter. Thank you. Let's go to Cliff. Um, this, this is a toss-up. Uh, is the foundation for the recommendations in S520 for cleaning and remediation, is it based upon health-based documents? Is it based on health-based documents? Correct. When, when we say, you know, when, when we provide, you know, say that mold needs to be removed, are these recommendations based upon other health-based Documents. Well, well I think that the health effects chapter is uh, was written by some people who really know the industry and know the health effects of of the ramifications of these of these decisions that the contractors make. And I think that it's based on the best possible uh, information that science has to provide at the time. And I think that the the drafters of that particular section. Um, are leaders in the industry and and really have their their hands around the problem and, and know exactly what needs to be done based upon what what objective scientific evidence tells them to do. But is it a is it overall a health related document partially? But uh, as a, we, the individuals who are utilizing this document are not holding themselves out or not qualified to render health-related uh, advice. I think that's a, chapter that's... Uh, three of the document. Also, uh, with, uh, the health effects section has uh, 52 references in the uh, at the end of the chapter, so you can see the length of investigation and review that they went through in order to. Uh, write the document. The other thing I'll comment on is um, in our principles right up front in the document, the number one principle has to do with safety and health of the workers and occupants. And the premise of the entire document is written around safety and health of the workers and occupants. That, that really was uh, 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 paramount to the entire document. I think that your, your listing of those citations at the end of the chapter was, was exactly what I was looking for. Thanks. And I'll add that last week we had Don Weeks, who was co-editor of the Green Book, and we specifically asked him, does AIHA consider mold growing in someone's home to be a public health issue? And based on all the evidence they have, they said yes. So I think, uh, I think we're, we're headed in the right direction, gentlemen. Before we go, um, we've got to thank our sponsors one more time. Then we're going to come back and ask you guys one more question, if you don't mind. Can you stick with us for another couple minutes? Sure. Absolutely. Great. Our newest sponsor is Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you acquire about their products and or services. All right, gentlemen, what we always like to do before we go is, is make sure that there wasn't something we missed or there wasn't something you would both like to add. Let's start with uh, Larry. Is there anything we missed or anything you'd like to add before we go? Well, one thing I'd like to add is that we're doing these workshops all over North America starting in November, and it's a great opportunity to learn about the document in a very quick fashion and ask questions about what the intent of writing was, 
or give comments that we can go back to the committee with. Um, we're going to be in Vancouver and Toronto, L.A., San Francisco, Denver, New York, New England, Dallas, Tampa, Knoxville, Chicago, Milwaukee, Pittsburgh, Phoenix, and Detroit. Those are the cities we currently have uh, available for the workshop. So we'll be publishing uh, this information around the different publications so we get information out. Great. And then before we go over to Michael, how would people contact you about if they had questions or comments from the show, Larry? Uh, first of all, they can always go to iicrc.org and go to the standards section. There's a place for comments. If they'd like to contact me directly, they're welcome to do that. My email address is www.pextilecon textilecon at aol.com. Very good. Michael, anything you'd like to add or uh, any comments? Sure. Um, as an attorney representing primarily contractors, remediators, manufacturers, I think the document has a lot of nuts and bolts, real practical advice embedded in it that the the owners or operators of these businesses should take a look at in, in really trying to limit their liability exposure. Because like we talked about earlier, uh, it's not if you're going to get sued, it's when. And I think that the tools, especially in the documentation and administrative procedures section, have a lot of plain, common sense uh, steps that, that business owners can take to uh, shield them from as much liability as possible. And I encourage them to, to read the document. Excellent. And if people... Unfortunately, we're in need of your services. <laughs> I guess it's fortunately or unfortunately. How would they contact you, Michael? Well, my main office number here in Houston is 713-629-1580. We also, my firm also has offices in Louisiana and Florida, and you can email me at mbowden, B-O-W-D-O-I-N, at brownsims.com. I want to make sure, too, that I don't, leave that hanging you know a lot of times it's a good idea to contact an attorney before you have a problem and see if you're uh have the appropriate risk management uh, procedures in place in your own company uh, do you pro provide those kind of services we do we also say that too that prevention is the best type of medicine and uh we have all kinds of tools at our disposal to help those uh, individual business owners to to avoid liability you can't completely escape it, but what you can do is give the individuals who are, are representing you enough arrows in the quiver to be able to provide a, a good answer in the effect that someone has an issue with your services. All right. Well, gentlemen, I want to thank both Larry Cooper and Michael Bowden for joining us this week. It's been a great discussion on the S520, and hopefully we'll uh, have you back again. And I, I, we still have about 20 questions we didn't get to, but uh, we'll, we'll hopefully get you back again or take you up on bringing in some of those chapter uh, section uh, subject experts. I also want to thank Glenn Fellman of IE Connections for joining us this week. Of course, I want to thank our uh, technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. Of course, can't forget the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Always a pleasure, Joe. My pleasure. And wingman, Chris Boisel at the controls. Thank you, sir. And most importantly, I want to thank our growing group of loyal listeners. Uh, I don't know if we set another record last week, but we were close. Thanks again for joining us, and please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 